Please be seated and please take the insert out of your bulletin and look there at the passages that are listed. We are in a special Advent series for these four weeks, looking at some of the special designations given to Christ by uh, Matthew, or at least in Matthew's gospel account, we see these names come out. They're not always names, they're titles, or they depict some aspect of Jesus's ministry. And so we are now to this phrase, or this designation, the king of the Jews. Um, He was identified specifically as the king of the Jews by the magi who had come to worship him. They had no doubt heard prophecies, maybe prophecies that came to them um, through Babylon and through um, the exile of the Israelites and their prophetic books and some Babylonian uh, sages or magi, as they're called, knew of this, this prophecy. And when the star appeared, they started a journey that probably lasted months, if not years, before they actually got there. But they identified Jesus as the king of the Jews. Now, of course, at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, at least before he went to the cross, Pilate asks him if he's the king of the Jews. So it's clear that this title was attributed to him. It's clear in Scripture that it was attributed to him. What's clearer in Scripture, and the whole of it, is that he's not just the king of the Jews. That phrase actually means he's the king of kings. And that's what unfolds in the Bible. On this third Sunday in Advent, let's consider Jesus' designation as the king of the Jews. And I'll read just two verses, Matthew 2, 1 through 2. That's in the list of verses you have there. But please keep that with you so that you can refer to the verses when I point you there. For now, though, please hear Matthew 2, 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we are in a season of reflection on your magnificent gift of Jesus Christ for our salvation. Please guide us in this brief consideration of Christ as king. Please give our minds understanding about what you reveal in your holy word. And as we grow in our understanding of our Savior, please deepen our devotion to you and make our worship more genuine. Glory to you in the highest, O Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Americans, when we think of monarchies or we think of kings, we have a definite history that connects to that. Um, Our country was formed, basically, in simple terms, um, to escape a monarchy, to escape that overrule. And so when we think of kingship or a monarchy, maybe we're jaded a little bit because of our experience nationally. Now, truth is, though, there aren't many examples of kingships or queenships or a monarchy that went well. Uh, Maybe for a little while, but over time, it usually ends very badly. In fact, that was no doubt part of the philosophy that was being discussed by Plato 400 years before the time of Christ. Even 400 years before the time of Christ, there have been plenty of, plenty of examples for Plato to theorize about, talk about, analyze with regard to what would be the best way to govern people. And in his famous Republic, he argues at some level, and this is very simple terms, but he basically argues that the ideal situation would be to have a benevolent dictator or a benevolent king. A philosopher king, of course, what he would say. 
The point is, someone who would know goodness, would know um, what love is, would be able to, through philosophy, find that out, and then have the sovereignty to exact it in the lives of the people. That would be the ultimate way to rule people. That's what he thought. Of course, Plato's theory was just that, an idealized dream, not something realized, something never witnessed by any kind of fullness anyways in history. Of course, the problem with a benevolent king idea is that there's never been one truly benevolent who's occupied a human throne. As human kingdoms go, the track record for kings and queens is not a good one on this earth, save for one who came and still reigns. And that's our focus today. It's against the backdrop of all those broken kingships we know of to realize that God depicts himself as the king. And now Christ is our king who rules over us. What does that mean? Well, it's a major theme in Scripture. It's a, it's a major thread that weaves, that weaves itself through the story of redemption that we read in the Bible. Jesus as the king of the Jews. That's a familiar designation to us, no doubt. Both at Christmas time and at Easter time, when we're see the birth narrative and his death narrative, we see this term, king of the Jews. The Magi come looking for the king of the Jews. Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Um, The idea of the king of the Jews, if you know who the Jews are, in full biblical revelation, you realize that means more than just the king of an an ethnicity or of a nation. Um, The Jews were to be a blessing to the nation through Abraham's covenant, so the king of the Jews would be the king of everybody. Ultimately, especially his people in his kingdom, the Messiah, this concept of the anointed one, uh, the one who would be chosen, that's the king, the Christ, the Christ of God. Now, for the Jewish people living at the time of Christ, they imagine, no doubt on the whole, they imagine this Messiah king to be one who would liberate them from Rome. They were thinking in close connection to David and how David liberated the Israelites from so many enemies. Certainly, any Messiah king to come would do the same for them with Rome. So they saw their Messiah king as one who would take the throne, not take a cross. They missed this period that would happen before his consummation as king. They saw their Messiah king as one who would reign over them and others, not suffer and die at the hand of others. For this Advent meditation, let's consider Jesus as the king of the Jews. First, we'll see how the Bible forecasts a messianic king. It's all through the Old Testament. It's there constantly looming, this picture of a messianic king to come. Then also we see Jesus identified as that king at his birth, the text that we just read. And then when we think of Jesus' life and ministry, he speaks as a king with a kingdom, no question. He teaches that. But finally, we'll see how it comes to pass, how much greater his vision and actualization of a king and a kingdom, how much greater it is than anything we could imagine or anything we've seen before. King Jesus in his current activity, what is he doing now as the king in the future to come, the future glory that we await? Let's consider first the scripture and its teaching on a messianic king to come. The Bible forecasts a messianic king throughout the Old Testament. I have a couple passages there listed. Before we get there, think to yourself, back to your understanding of the Old Testament. If you're new to it, think about how this unfolds. In the book of Genesis, early in the Bible, right after sin enters, God promises to send one 
to undo the sin that Adam committed, that we all committed in Adam. We're separated from God because of that sin, but in Genesis 3.15, he promises to send a seed from the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. A second Adam. That if we could be in him, then we would not have the sin of the first Adam on us any longer. We would have that representation instead. So that's the one. The seed of the woman. The anointed one. The Messiah. Early in the scripture, and then from, from that point forward, all the pictures of God's promises and his touch, touching with his people in various ways of redemption, all forecast the coming Messiah who would fulfill this salvation that we have to have. We cannot have it without him, the anointed one. In the process, God anoints prophets to speak of the Messiah. He anoints priests to carry out sacrifices that will picture the Messiah. And we see this unfold in the Old Testament. God led the people directly through the prophets. He spoke through the prophets and did amazing things. He was their king. God was Israel's king as as Israel developed. They didn't need an earthly king. They had God speaking through the prophets and through the temple or through the tabernacle at first and then the temple eventually. You have this presence of God with them, the priesthood representing the mediation of the sacrifice who would be the Christ for them and their sins. God was their king. But what happened? In time, Israel looked around at the other nations of earth who were under God's judgment, remember. But they looked and said, Philistia has a king. Look at their king. The Hittites have a king. We want a king like that. Why don't we have a king like this? In essence, they were rejecting God's kingship, the theocracy. They wanted a king like the other nations. And God, in his great wisdom, gives them what they ask for. God's never thwarted in his plan. What he's going to do will always come to pass. And even this is part of it. But on the human level, what he does is he gives them Saul. You want a king like everybody else has? I'll give you a king. And immediately they feel the weightiness of this. There's some benefit initially, but overall what happens with human kings, sinful kings, because that's what they are as humans, is they, they falter and they fail. And so they long for what happened before Saul when Saul takes the lead and so many tragedies and difficulties and divisions happen. And after time, he rejects Saul, and then he brings David. David is to be a prototype or a picture of the Christ, of the Messiah. That's what unfolds in the Old Testament. So he speaks through the prophet Samuel at the time of David being named king. And listen to what he says in the passages there on your outline. This is the the so-called Davidic promise or Davidic covenant When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you. Raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, as is often the case in Old Testament prophetic utterances, there's this immediate fulfillment. People think, well, is Solomon that person? Look at all that was accomplished. No, Solomon is still that human king who was fallible in so many ways, and obviously so. This is a picture that looks forward to the ultimate messianic king that will come, the anointed one. And this is a thousand years, by the way, before Christ comes. David becomes the key kingly figure in the Old Testament to point us or alert us to Christ the king. This is why the Holy Spirit moves David himself to write in Psalm 89, which is also there on your, on your handout, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. 
I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. It can't be Solomon because the, the kingdom split under Solomon. And eventually, both kingdoms were assimilated into other nations. But this everlasting promise that God made had to come to pass. The greater son of David would eventually come. Uh, the, the prevailing message of the Old Testament is the coming Messiah. In the Messiah, Christ, the anointed one, is the greater son of David. This is why when Jesus was going to Jerusalem the last time, before he was crucified, in Matthew 21, the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The Messiah would come as the Messiah King, but the Messiah would also embody these other offices that God had used to reveal his gospel, to reveal his plan to save them through the Messiah. You remember, he sent prophets. Well, the Messiah would be the final prophet, God himself speaking God's word. The other prophets spoke God's word by God's direction, but they were flawed. Jesus is the perfect prophet, so he comes and occupies that role perfectly. God ordained kings to lead the people, to rule over them, to care for them, to protect them. They were all flawed in the many ways that they were, proof so. Jesus would be the king who would be over all other kings, the final king ever necessary. What about priest, the priesthood? What did the priests do? They represented the people uh, kind of as a, a mediator between the people and God, bringing the sacrifices slaughtering the sacrifices that represented the blood that needed to be shed for the forgiveness of their sins, the priests would carry that for them. But the priests would have to offer their own sacrifices because they needed forgiveness for their sins. But as the book of Hebrews says so gloriously, Jesus is the final priest. He not only brings the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice, the last one ever necessary, once for all. So the Messiah is the king, but also the final prophet and the final priest. Any who have come since, like the apostles, they are just prophets, if you will, from King Jesus. Representatives to tell us, and that's how God pens his word, is through the apostles. So Jesus, as the king, comes as this great fulfiller of the promises of the Old Testament. Being the sovereign one, God himself would now come and again rule in fullness as the Messiah in his advent, first time, now we await for the final time, but he is the king. We'll see that as the passages of Scripture move forward. Jesus identified, or is identified at his birth as this Messiah king, the one who's forecasted. We have that in the gospel accounts. But look at the passage that I have on the insert. This is one we didn't read this morning yet. Luke 1, 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. So early in the gospel accounts, with no unmistakable terms, Jesus is declared to be the Messiah King, forecasted in the Old Testament. Verse 33 of Luke 1. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Declared as the promised Messiah at the birth narratives, Jesus connected to the Davidic promises, Jesus whose name is the Lord saves Yeshua, saving people from their sins, accented his Messiahship 
He's not liberating them from Rome. That's not the reason he came. He came for something far greater. And the Magi seem to get this when we come to the passage that I read earlier there also. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Matthew 2 of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So the Magi understand through the prophecy that they had access to that there would be a king, a Messiah king, who would again come to this nation of Israel they were familiar with. And they came. They wanted to see this. They wanted to know what this was about. They recognized the Jewish Messiah king and recognized him as worthy of worship. The Jews at large did not see their Messiah as being a king who would go to the cross. They saw him as a liberator. They saw him as someone who would take the throne immediately, who would reign instantaneously. They did not have the picture that the prophet Isaiah does give in fullness that he would have to suffer first. Jesus identified at his birth as the king of the Jews. Now, think of the life of Christ and what you know from the, old, from the gospel readings. Jesus consistently talks about his kingdom, the ushering in of the kingdom. He speaks in kingdom terms frequently. For instance, in Luke chapter 4, But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That's early in his ministry. He's speaking of the kingdom of God being ushered in. He spoke about this regularly. And the disciples evidenced a basic understanding. It was flawed. It had problems. But they had a basic understanding about Jesus and the kingdom. One example happens after Jesus talks to Zacchaeus and various church leaders are watching what happens. And after this discussion with this Jewish man, It says in Luke 19, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So there was a misunderstanding about the kingdom, but there was an understanding that the Messiah would be the king. Jesus was taking that identity, but explaining it in accurate terms. Which, even though at the front end they didn't think it was as great, it ends up being a much greater kingship than anything any person could imagine or devise. But Jesus owns this office or this role as king and speaks of the kingdom regularly. Goldsworthy, who writes a lot about the kingdom motif or theme in Scripture, he said Jesus embodies the kingdom motif of God's people in God's place under God's rule. Jesus is both the faithful ruler and the righteous citizen of the kingdom. Jesus spoke as a king with a kingdom in his earthly ministry. The most vivid example is there on the insert for you to see. Look there. This is the time when Pilate is putting Jesus on trial. The thing that Pilate is most offended by is the idea that a person could say they're the ruler when Caesar is supposed to be the ruler. And the Jews knew this. They used this to frame Jesus. There were many things they wanted to kill him for, but they knew what would get Pilate upset is by saying, listen, this Jesus says he's a king. And Pilate, as the governor and a representative for Caesar, had to defend Caesar's honor and authority. And so it had to miff him a bit as he looks at Jesus, says, how can this guy be a king? But he's saying he is. I've got to interrogate him. It's part of my duty. And so he goes into this interrogation with Christ about this claim to be king. And notice what Jesus does say and doesn't say. It really teaches us a lot about the nature of his kingship, which is the real blessing for all of us as we consider it. Look at the passage. 
So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Now right away, Pilate's got to be a bit relieved. I don't want to deal with this guy. He's harmless enough. His kingdom is not of this world. Who? All I care about is this world, Pilate says, and so says most natural people. This is all that matters. Oh, you're a kingdom of another world. Big deal. But Jesus goes on. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. If I were trying to overtake something, you would see me taking up arms. You would see it. Clearly, my kingship is something else. Now notice, he doesn't deny that he's king. He's just speaking of what the nature of his kingdom is. Now, Pilate, in his worldliness, has got to be a bit relieved, thinking, okay, he's not here to say he's going to take over Rome, um, so that's good. What he doesn't realize is what Jesus is saying is far more powerful than Rome. It's way more authoritative than Rome, way more influential than Rome. But my kingdom is not from this world, verse 36. Look at verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now pay close attention to what Jesus says here. This has to do with his kingship. This has to do with his authority. Now listen to it again. You say I am a king, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate says, what's truth? Now back up. Think about this. Jesus isn't answering straight up. What he's saying is, when he speaks, he speaks the truth. And people who believe the truth or believe him listen to it. That is the most powerful influence one could ever imagine. In other words, Pilate, Pilate doesn't get this because he's keyed on what is truth. Whatever Jesus says is truth, and those who are of the truth will believe. I am the king of truth. Anyone who believes the truth is under my lordship because I am truth. He is saying I am the king of everything. He's not backing down to get He's saying, no, really what you're saying is minuscule. It's Rome. Little old Rome. The Roman Empire, that is. That's nothing compared to what I've come to do. My kingship is I speak the truth. If people believe the truth, follow. See, that's the kingship of Christ. That's what makes it so much greater than any other king who has ever lived. Because he's the king of our hearts. He's the king of truth. That means if you are here today, and I think you're here today most likely because you want to worship Christ. Because you recognize him as king. You have a rebellious heart like I do, but it's been subdued by the king. And we admit it, so we're here. That's king. That is a po- what kind of power can subdue a heart except for the king of the universe? And so that's King Jesus. See, King Jesus isn't concerned with kingdoms on earth that rise and fall. What he's concerned with is sovereignty over the hearts of men and women. And that's what he has over you. That's why you're here. You're praising God because King Jesus has, thank God, subdued you to himself. That's the king that is before Pilate. Not just another earthly king like Herod or Caesar or any others. This is the king. And he's our king. And we worship him because he has sovereignly ruled that we would. You cannot resist that king. What greater king could there be than King Jesus? 
He doesn't deny any kingship. Rather, he explains it in its totality and it's greater than any kind of kingship anyone could imagine. You know, this issue of God's authority over us as king, the king of our hearts in this respect, it's something that people battle. And all of us recognize it. Even as Christians, we battle with the idea that God could tell us what to do. It's a struggle for us. Now, we rejoice in it once we are subdued and recognize we need his kingship and we quit trying to do it all on our own. But the world at large doesn't like this message, and Pilate didn't like it any more than than people do, any people do. And think about it from the words of Spurgeon, who was preaching on this topic, and he said, why did Pilate not write, this is Jesus' king or teacher of the Jews, or priest of the Jews, but rather king of the Jews? Why did he put that? Because Pilate wanted to display the weakness of the Jews. This crucified criminal is your king, and you think you're going to take over Rome? That's what Pilate's thinking. It's so temporal. It's so narrow. Little does he know what he's actually saying when he puts the sign up there. Jesus is the king. He doesn't even get it. Listen to what Spurgeon says about this. I think it's very helpful. I see here that man's chief objection to Christ in his authority is his authority. For the essence of that inscription was Jesus is the king. That's the essence of the sign over the cross. Pilate did not write, this is Jesus the teacher. Or many might have said, let him teach what he pleases. It's no concern of ours. We do not care what the seers see or what they say. Pilate also did not put up Jesus, this is Jesus the priest. Many would be quite content to let him be a great priest if they could be priests too. But Pilate wrote, Jesus, this Jesus is the king. And that is the target at which they shoot all their arrows. You remember that the writer of the second psalm says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. The resolve of human nature until it is renewed is always this. We will not have this man to reign over us. Men might be willing for Christ to save them, but not for him to reign over them. Such laws as these, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall forgive till 70 times 7. The law of love, the law of gentleness, the law of kindness. Man says that he admires them. But when these laws come home to him and lay hold of the reins of his ambition, cramp his covetousness and condemn his self-righteousness, straightway he's offended. And when Christ says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. When he begins so, so teach the necessity of the absolute purity and to say that even a lustful glance of the eye is sin, then men reply, his rule will never do for us. And they hang him up to die because they will not submit to his authority. Oh, if you have affection for Christ, if you rest in Christ, he has become your king. He has subdued you to himself. What is Jesus' current ministry? The theologians like to say, what is the current session of Christ? What's he actively doing? There are lots of helpful um, recollections that we have at Advent. You know, you see the nativity sets and so forth. But let us not think for a moment that that picture of a baby or that little uh, statue of a baby or whatever, that's not Jesus now at all. It doesn't depict what he's doing now at all. Nor is Jesus on a cross. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father ruling, and from there he's going to judge. And he is actively engaged. When you go to bed, he's actively engaged in intercession. He is overseeing the affairs of men. Um, In him we live and move and have our being. He never sleeps on this. He is constantly aware and reigning and ruling. That's what King Jesus does. That's the real picture of what his activity is right now. 
In fact, one of the most helpful question and answers in our catechism is, um, how does Jesus carry out the office of a king? What does he do? What is he doing as the king? And as the king, the question, the answer goes, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself. That's what we just spoke of. That he brought you, a rebel heart, to himself to love him and worship him. He executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us. These are present tense. And restraining and conquering all his and our enemies, which are the same, by the way. Let's take this apart. As king, Jesus subdues us to himself. He brings you to himself. You cannot fight it. He will bring you to himself. Now, we try to fight it, and it's miserable until we stop fighting and recognize his rule. And we come to love it. Because he's lovable. As the king, he subdues us to himself. In Psalm 110, which is a beautiful psalm of the Messiah, the forecast, your people will offer themselves freely on, the, on that day, that day of your power, in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. This forecast is day when people are subdued by heart and they come to Christ the king. He subdues them. As king, Christ rules and defends us. I mean, what do kings do? They rule us, they defend us, they provide for us, they protect us, all these things. And he rules and defends us. He sends his Holy Spirit to direct us. He gives us his word to guide us. He protects us by his word and his spirit. He preserves us through trials, through hardships and persecutions. The tough stuff that happens to you is not an indicator that he's not defending you. You're not destroyed by it. You're not ultimately wiped out because of it. They're actually part of his providence to show his strength in you. They actually work to preserve us. In Isaiah 33, 22, For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. As king, Christ also restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. Ultimately, Christ will not allow his people to be destroyed or annihilated. He holds back our enemies so they cannot defeat us. Eventually, he will defeat all of his and our enemies in the final judgment. Back to Psalm 100, that most often quoted psalm for good reason. The Lord said to my Lord, the Father said to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, is addressing this active ministry of Jesus in the life of believers for us too. In Corinthians 15, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Paul is capturing the fulfillment of Psalm 110 in the person of Christ, and that's what they awaited in the time of the Corinthians, and we await as well. The passage that I cite there on the insert, though, please notice it, under this final point of Jesus' current session. This is very practical. This is very like, what is Jesus doing in your life right now, and how should you view it? How should you practically think of Christ right now? Colossians 3 helps us. Verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, this is not a verse to tell you to forget everything you got to do earthly that's earthly or your obligations here in this life. That's not what it means at all. 
It just means that you are seeking after the eternally valuable rewards that come in Christ, the joy that comes in eternity. So that will color your perspective in a good way about the things you are called to do now. Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Setting one's mind on is focusing on, it doesn't mean ignoring the other things, but recognizing the things we have to do here feed into something greater, and that's how we ought to think of them, and it'll help us see them in their proper perspective when we get this. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life? Not a part of your life, not one of the priorities, that let me spend a Who is your life? Appears. And that's king talk. He is your life. Then you also will appear with him in glory. His present session is protecting you, providing for you, loving, for you, loving you. And it's building towards something. It's building towards that great and glorious day that we look forward to. Advent is, yes, in one sense, about remembering the birth of Christ. But it's also seeing that God perfectly fulfilled these promises so that we can know the great and glorious promises will happen. That's what's so precious about God's promises. We've seen them already come to pass. There's still more to come. The book of Daniel, written many years before Christ comes, forecasts something that is still waiting final fulfillment. In the book of Daniel 7, 11, listen to what it says. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, his body destroyed and given over to the, and burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Then verse 13 of Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. Now the passage I have last on your insert. In the book of Revelation, it's filling out what will happen in Christ that's depicted in Daniel many years before. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. This is one of the favorite verses of Handel when he wrote Messiah. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Later in Revelation 17, they will make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. In Revelation 19, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The longing for a leader who knows what is in his or her people, in their people's best interest, who rules with care and guides a nation on a wise path. That was Plato's idea of a philosopher king. And it's a tempting picture for sure, but it's really asking the wrong question. In political history, philosophers move from a preference for such benevolent dictators, like what would be the best way, to really the, the practical reality of democracy, which switched the question from who could be the best ruler to what system prevents the worst kind of rulership. 
And all of that's what we have to deal with here and now. In Rome, at the time, in her misguided tyranny, uh, pagan tyranny, you might say, they tried to enforce a loyalty oath where people had to say, Caesar is king. Really, Caesar is Lord. And Christians had to deal with this. Uh, They had to show every possible form of civil obedience that they could. They paid taxes. They honored the king as they could. Uh, They were model citizens to the degree they could be. But they could not, in good conscience, obey a mandate to say that Caesar was Lord. The response to that loyalty oath was rather, Kaiser Curios, Jesus is Lord. The lordship and the kingship of Jesus is not simply a hope of Christians that someday might be realized. It's a truth that has already taken place. And it was R.C. Sproul who taught this so clearly in his life's ministry. He would say, in essence, the task of the church is to bear witness to an invisible kingdom, which is taken from what Calvin said. It is the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom of God visible. Though invisible, it's nevertheless real. In Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, small k, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, and they get what should follow. We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we read in Scripture that Jesus is now seated at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Lord Jesus, you are our king. You're not just a king, but the king, the king of kings, with authority and dominion over all things. Give us a renewed, joyful, and grateful devotion to you this day. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's together 